Well, I don't know what your um, experience has been if you've, uh, of this series. If you've been a part of this series for the last three weeks, this is the fourth week in the series. I do know um, that for some people in the community, this series has been a real gift. And I, I know that because Jeff and I have been receiving emails right from the, the very first week of this series from people who have wanted to express their appreciation for how we have been trying to articulate the good news about Jesus, which Jeff did three weeks ago uh, when he said that the, the good news is that we are invited in to live a life of love through an act of love by a God who is love. That, that the message of the scriptures is that we've been invited to love God, to love each other, and to love the world through Jesus' act of love, his life and his death and his resurrection, which revealed the love of God for every one of us. And, and the, the goal of this series has been to contrast the good news about this life of love with the ways in which we subtly distort the news and turn it into fake news. The fake news two weeks ago that uh, what God really wants from us is our religious behavior. And I said, no, you know, God has set you free from that. God's inviting you to just love him and to love people. And I got emails from people um, saying, thank you for the freedom that that provides. And, and then last week we talked about how the fake news is that um, a life of faith is kind of a shame-based sin management system that we're supposed to wallow in our sin all of the time so that we can remember and live into how good Jesus is. We said, no, God has set you free from condemnation and shame. And you're created in the image of God to be a creature who loves and who is loved by God. And, and I got emails saying, um, thank you. It was such a liberating message. And, and so this morning, we're going to look at the third version of the fake news. And I anticipate that this coming week, I'm going to get uh, emails again. Probably some, I hope, of that same encouraging variety that this, you know, this morning is meaningful to some people. But I also anticipate another kind of email that I have typically gotten when we address a topic like this one, where the fake news that we're going to talk about this morning is that a life of faith is motivated by a fear of God's judgment. That somewhere at the heart of a life of faith is this fear that God is going to judge me for my sin, maybe both in this life and ultimately, you know, if I'm not good enough, if I don't believe well enough, that God is going to throw me into hell for all eternity. And I know if you've been around, we've had conversations about topics like judgment and hell before. And I know that we haven't always uh, connected. I haven't always communicated clearly what I mean by some of this. And it's created some confusion. So I'm hoping that what we can do this morning is to look at the fake news that a life of faith is about being afraid of God's judgment. And contrast it, somehow reconcile that with the good news that God is a God of love who acted in love to invite us into a life of love. And so we're going to begin by looking at the concept of judgment this morning. I think in past when I have talked about the issue of hell and said, well, I don't really you know, believe in hell the way that uh, popular uh, conceptions of hell sort of hold, um, people have basically oftentimes responded to me by saying, well, then you don't believe in judgment. That what you're saying, if you don't believe in hell, 
is that uh, God doesn't really care about sin. That sin is no big deal. And truth be told, that is not what I'm saying at all. I believe deeply that God judges sin because that's exactly what the scriptures teach. In Exodus chapter 34, it says this. And God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. This sounds like what we've been studying so far. Yet, it says, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God is a God of love filled with compassion and mercy. And he is simultaneously a God who judges sin. That's, that's what the scripture teaches. In fact, we talked about that last week when I was talking about the four spiritual laws, the second spiritual law, you know, that humanity is sinful and separated from God. And because of our sin, we do not get to experience God's love and plan for our life. The the point is that sin always has consequences when it comes to our relationship with God. And the Bible is super clear about that. Talks about it often. Talks about the fact that sin in our lives comes with consequences that um, sometimes the scriptures seem to be describing consequences that occur to us right in the midst of our life in this world. In, in Proverbs eleven seventeen, 17, I just picked this verse at random. I could have picked many others. It says, those who are kind benefit themselves, but the cruel bring ruin on themselves. That if you choose to live a life of sin, which we defined last week as being a life that is unloving, non-loving, anti-loving, if you choose a life that is the opposite of love, in this case, cruelty, that choice to live a life of sin will rebound back on you and you will experience the destructive effects of the choice that you have made to live a life of sin. You will experience judgment in this life for your a decision to sin, to live in sin. And sometimes the Bible seems to be describing a judgment that happens not in this life, but beyond this life, after this life. I think of Mark chapter 9, where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. This passage has usually been read to communicate that that, um, even after our life here is over, that God will judge our sin in a way that will last for all of eternity. Um, Really, the the most ancient version, the most ancient affirmation of the beliefs that are core to what it means to be a Christian, the Apostles' Creed it's called, it says that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And that's what the scriptures teach. And you know what? To be perfectly honest, the idea that judgment, that justice, that fairness and rightness 
responding to sin is somehow inherent in the nature of God doesn't surprise us because it is absolutely inherent in our nature as well. We are created in the image of God. We're created to be like God. And we too have this instinct in us that sin somehow ought to encounter judgment. That things ought, that are not right ought to be made right. The, the most oft used sentence in my home and it's like this, if you've ever been around children anywhere, the most oft used phrase in my home is, that's not, what, fair. Kids have an instinct for justice, a sense that there is a right way and a wrong way. And when things are wrong, the cry that says that's not fair is a cry out for somebody to render judgment on the situation, to declare that the situation does not meet the standard of the way things should be and to do something about that. That's what judgment is. It's to render a verdict on something, the rightness or wrongness of something. And when it is wrong, to act in order to address the wrongness of the situation. Uh, to be honest, being a parent demands an incredible amount of judgment. The, the, most, the hardest part of being a parent, I think, and my oldest is 12, so I'm not in nearly the deep water yet, but it's trying to exercise discerning judgment about what happened, right? Who did what to whom and in response to what and who's lying about it now because I didn't see what went on. Like this, this notion, the exercising discerning judgment as it pertains to raising our kids. That's the most difficult part of parenting. We just, we have this instinct that things that aren't the way they should be that are, that are experiencing wrongness have to be made right. It's essential to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for rightness, for they will be filled. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is to develop, to nurture this hunger, this craving for rightness in yourself and in our world. This longing that God would act in such a way that wrong things are made right. And those who live that way experience uh, the flourishing of life. Their lives tend towards flourishing. Like it says in Proverbs, those who are kind benefit themselves. When you exercise rightness, your life tends towards flourishing. When you crave rightness for the world. That's what it means to be a part of, uh, of following Jesus. It's to hunger for rightness, that, that a, a verdict, a judgment would be rendered on the wrongness of our world. That is just fundamentally true about a life of faith. But as I said last week, the good news becomes fake news when we take something that is true and we turn it into the truth about a life of faith. And that's true about the idea of God's judgment as well, that we, we, we kind of centralize it. And when we make God's judgment of sin the centerpiece of the good news about Jesus, we distort the entire good news. In fact, we, we take a life that is supposed to be a life of love and we turn it into a life of fear. We're either in the forefront or in the back burner of our mind. We are living our lives every moment of our, every day with this either overt or implicit fear that if we screw things up badly, God is going to land on us like a sumo wrestler and bring his judgment into our lives. 
I've talked to people who instinctively assume that every painful circumstance they experience is somehow the judgment of God on them for a decision or for a series of choices that they've made in their life. That somehow every painful circumstance is God punishing me for something that I did wrong. And then your brain begins to spin. If doing something wrong got God angry at me and now he's punishing me, what can I do to make God happy with me again so that he'll take this punishment away? And then we begin to think, what religious behavior can I get involved in? What religiosity? How how can I attend church more, read the Bible more, pray more, give more, serve more? You know, what can I do to make God happy? Or we go internal into that shame-based sin management we talked about last week. We start scouring our soul. (coughs) <coughs> excuse me, for the gawk and the, and the mock in our, in, our, in our soul, in our spirit that's caused God to be angry. We try and root that stuff. We just kind of live a life that is rooted in the ever-present possibility that God is going to judge me in my life for my sin and this sort of latent fear that if I don't get my act together enough, that if I don't believe in Jesus well enough, if I don't behave well enough, if I don't know my Bible well enough, if I'm not, if I don't give enough, if I don't serve enough, if I don't do whatever enough, that God could find me lacking in the day of judgment and he could throw me into eternity, eternal conscious torment. God would throw me into this place called hell where he keeps me alive for all of eternity for the express purpose of torturing me in revenge for how bad I was in this life. It's a terrifying picture of a terrifying future at the hands of what is quite frankly a terrifying God. And it is fundamentally at odds with how the Bible describes our relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 4, it says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God lives in them. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Listen to what John is saying. He starts exactly the same place we start in this series. God is love. It is essential to his being. It is the only posture that God has ever taken towards any of us ever. His every action, thought, and attitude is always only ever love. Um, That love, John goes on to say, is incompatible with fear. Love and fear are mutually exclusive. If you are in a relationship of love, that love drives out fear. Um, you'd say it this way. If you are in a relationship with somebody who terrifies you, you cannot love that person and you cannot receive love from that person. It's fundamentally impossible. On the flip side, if you live in a relationship of perfect love where somebody loves you perfectly, you will never have anything to ever be afraid of in relationship with that person. And John says, that's what our relationship is like with God. His posture towards us has always only ever been love. 
And so we really have a choice between two ways of how we're going to relate to God. We can either relate to God in fear, in that fear of punishment, in the fear of judgment, in which case we will not experience the love of God and we cannot love God back. And in fact, we will not become the people that God has created us to be. John says, you will not be made perfect in love. You will not be made complete and whole and mature as a person living a life of love. That outcome is impossible if fear is your posture. So you can choose a life of fear or you can choose a life of love. And if you choose a life of love, John says, then you will live in God and God will live in you. And you will have no fear of the judgment of God. In fact, you will have confidence in the face of his judgment. And why will you have confidence? Because in this world, you've been like Jesus. You've lived a life of love, just the way Jesus did. And you lived it because of Jesus, because of his life and death and resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit that enables you to become like Jesus in living a life of love. So how do we bring these ideas together that on the one hand, God is a God who judges sin. And on the other hand, God only ever wants to relate to us. God only ever does relate to us in love and only ever wants us to love him back. How do you bring those ideas together? Well, I think the two uh, elephants in the room that we have to address are the concept of hell and the concept of the wrath of God. And once we talk about those two, um, then we can talk about how the judgment of God and the love of God come together. And so first, as it comes out, in the next couple minutes, you're just going to have to put your thinking cap on. It's not going to last too long. But I just want to talk to you about the concept of hell. Because at the end of the day, in my opinion, and I know people disagree with me, but I just want you to hear me out. I want you to come with an open heart and an open mind and enter into a loving dialogue about this if you don't agree with me. But in my opinion, I do not find the concept of hell in the pages of Scripture. That's just where I'm at. In fact... Uh, in part, I would say, because there is no actual mention. There is no word in the scriptures, in, written in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. There is no word that means what we mean when we use the word hell. Just kind of funny thing to say, considering I've already read a passage in this sermon with the word hell in it. That word is being translated by somebody who already has a conviction about hell and is using that word when the word that is being translated by hell doesn't mean what we mean when we say hell. Um, the Bible uses four different words that people have interpreted to mean what happens to people after they die. Uh, people who've rejected God. I actually think only three of them refer to that and one doesn't, but we'll talk about them. The first one is a Hebrew word from the Old Testament of the Bible, the Jewish scriptures, and the word is Sheol. And the word Sheol simply means the grave. It's where dead people go and you don't come back from there. Uh, nowhere in the Jewish scriptures, I mean, except at the very, very tail end of the writing of the Jewish scriptures, 99.9% uh, .9 of the Jewish scriptures do not believe that there is life after you die. 
The Jewish religion described in the Old Testament is a religion that is entirely focused on what happens in this life and does not have, like I say, until the very end, it has only the faintest, vaguest hint that something else may happen after you die. But, but the Jewish religion is in the Old Testament is not about the afterlife. So you can't get the concept from there. In the New Testament, there's two key words. The one is Hades. Hades is a concept that comes from Greek mythology that is similar to the idea of Sheol. It basically means the place that dead people go. Uh, the difference would be that uh, the Jews believe that your soul and your spirit, you're just uh, one creature. A soul is a living body. That's what a soul is. And when the body stops living, the soul is gone. The Greeks said, no, the soul is different. You have an inside you and an outside you, and your outside you goes in the grave, but your inside you, your soul, goes to a place called Hades, but everyone goes to the same place. It's not a very nice existence. Um, there's no heaven, hell concept. It's just you have an inner part of you that goes somewhere else when you die, and it's a place called Hades, and everyone goes there. Um, that idea, by the way, of an inner soul is a Greek philosophical idea, not a Christian theological idea. The other word is the word Tartarus. Tartarus comes from Roman mythology, and it's the place where the bad gods and the fallen angels and ultimately bad people go when they die. Uh, but it's a, you know, a kind of a mythological construct. And then the last word is the word Gehenna, which doesn't have to do with an afterlife destination at all. In fact, Gehenna is a literal geographical location just outside the city of Jerusalem, where in Israel's history, they had experienced tragedy and horror when the Babylonian army destroyed the city of Jerusalem and threw all the corpses into the Valley of Hinnom, into Gehenna, and set them all on fire and so on. But the word Gehenna, I believe, most of the time, if not all of the time in the Bible refers to a judgment that is experienced in the flesh and blood in time and space in within our lives prior to death. So what you're left with is Hades and Tartarus, which are both constructs that come out of Greek and Roman mythology, language that is only ever used in the scriptures in contexts where it is metaphorical or symbolic or in a parable, a fictional story that Jesus told, or in a poem. And you get, this, you get this mythological concept spoken about in symbolic metaphorical terms that then gets interpreted literally and says, no, I think that's really actually what happens. And to be honest, the concepts that we associate with hell, we don't get from scripture either. We get most of those concepts from Dante's Inferno, which was written in the Middle Ages. And Dante intended it to be an allegory of how badly your life goes when you decide to choose certain kinds of sins. And it was misread as a literal description of what hell is like. So, so the language of hell is a mythological construct in metaphorical symbolic language interpreted through an allegory that's been misinterpreted. That, that's, that's how I read the evidence. There are now two other ideas about what happens to people after they die that the Bible talks about. One is called annihilationism. The idea is that when you die, if you have rejected the love of God in your life, you just cease to be. You don't exist anymore. Um, in John chapter 3.16, it says this, for God so loved the world 
God's posture is only always ever love. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this passage has often been read, have eternal life. That means go to heaven when you die, which it doesn't. And perish means go to hell, which it doesn't. If you read the Greek, the word perish means to be destroyed, to be ruined, to, to cease to exist. Any, any ideas or notions about hell are imported by the reader. They're, they're not in the text. And the idea is that um, if somebody chooses to reject God, they are cutting themselves off from the source of life. And so when they die, they just cease to be. The other is a concept called universalism. The idea that God's furious love will ultimately save everybody. And it's rooted in passages like Romans chapter 5, verse 18, where it says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. One righteous act, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, resulted in justification, forgiveness, and life for whom? All people. All people. And the question is, does all really mean all? So here's what happens. And this is why theologians have disagreed about this stuff for 2,000 years. So we're not going to sort it out this morning. But what happens is we, we come to the scriptures with our own idea of what we think happens when we die. And then we read the passages in light of that, right? So you go believing in hell and then you read John 3.16, shall not perish. You say, oh, perish means go to hell. And you read Romans and it says all. And you go, well, all doesn't mean all. It just means all who put their faith in Jesus. Or you go as an annihilationist. You say, I just think people stop existing. And the worm and the fire, that's just metaphorical. And all just means everybody who believes in Jesus. Or you go as a universalist. And you say, no, all means all, everybody. So God destroys the sin in us and saves, you know, us from our sin. He destroys the sin and he uses the fire to refine us and that's symbolic and whatever. But you see what happens. The, the point of all of this is this. However we understand what happens to us after we die, it has to be fundamentally consistent with the one thing that we know to be true and that is that God's only action, attitude, and posture towards us is always only ever love. And so... That has to continue to be the framework through which we view the judgment of God. The other concept that we need to talk about briefly is the wrath of God. Now, wrath, that's metaphorical language too. Every time we talk about God, God transcends all our categories. We can only speak about God in metaphor. And so the word wrath is a metaphor in exactly the same way that we say that God is a rock or in exactly the same way that we say that God sometimes sleeps. God doesn't sleep and God's not a rock. But we say those things because they help communicate metaphorically something that is true about God. But the problem is when you take a metaphor and you literalize it, you distort the meaning entirely. And so we take the word wrath and we say, well, I know what wrath looks like in my life when it's coming from me or directed at me. It's sort of this um, furious rage that is intent on revenge. And so the Bible describes God's wrath. What they must mean is that when I sin, God flies into a furious rage and he demands revenge. But that's, uh, that's not what wrath means. 
That's not God's attitude towards sin. There's this story that gets told. Jesus is approaching the city of Jerusalem and he knows the city of Jerusalem. It's just days before his crucifixion. They're all gonna reject him and uh, they don't believe in him. They're not accepting his message of love. And that means that the nation of Israel is gonna stay on a path that is gonna lead to a collision course with the Roman Empire who's gonna put up siege ramps against the city of Jerusalem and destroy the city, which they did in 70 AD. And Jesus sees all of this coming. He sees this rebellion and sin that they're going to channel at him. And he does not respond with a furious rage. This is what what happens. Luke 19, 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus responds to our sin, not with a furious rage, but with a heartbreak. He weeps over our sin. And of course, days later, Jesus goes to the cross to defeat the power of sin because in Jesus, God reveals himself to be a God who would rather die for his enemies than kill them. That's not how God responds to sin in rage. And quite honestly, we said sin always has consequences, but I think the Bible's clear that the consequences of our sin come from the sin itself, not from God. In Romans 6, it says this, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this verse, there are two different agents who are providing two different things. God is providing the gift of eternal life. Sin is providing death. It's sin that brings the consequences of sin into our lives, not God. God doesn't punish us for our sin. Our consequences, the punishment, the judgment we experience are the consequences of the sin itself. To sin is like being a scuba diver who cuts their own breathing tube. The water does not kill the scuba diver in a furious rage for cutting its breathing tube. What happens is they suffer the consequences of having cut themselves off from the only source of life that they had. Death is what sin does to us when we sin. If you choose to cheat on your spouse, that sin will bring death to your marriage. If you choose to stab your friend in the back, that sin will bring death to your friendship. If you choose to cheat at work, that sin could bring death to your career. If you choose to sin in lust, that will bring death to your sexuality, to a healthy sexuality. If you sin in greed, that will bring death to your soul. It's sin that brings the death. The wrath of God appropriately defined. The wrath of God is his heartbroken, loving consent to our self-inflicted wounds by our choice to sin. That's what the wrath of God is. So now, here's how we bring together God's wrath and his love. John chapter 10 verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Who? God? No, the thief steals and kills and destroys. I, Jesus, have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus' wonderful plan for your life is that you would live a life of love. 
that you would experience eternal life, which is not a place that you go when you die. It is the quality of the life of heaven that you begin to experience in your life right now here on earth in a way that starts now and lasts forever, even lasts beyond the grave. And the quality of that life is a life that is fully and desperately Uh, embracing the love of God for you and fully and wholly responding to that love with a love for God, with all that you have and all that you are that changes the way that you see yourself. So now you understand your identity to be the one who is beloved by God and you begin to love yourself and that love begins to overflow into the lives of the people around you and now you begin to love everybody else as much as you love yourself and now as a community that love begins to flow into the world and we begin to love the whole world and the planet itself with the love of God that is welling up in us because of our because we were open to receive the love of of God by faith in Jesus. That's what God has come to do. And sin destroys the life of God in us. Sin destroys, it steals and kills and destroys the life that God wants to put in us. Through its consequences, through the death that it brings into our lives. But this is what God does. See, the power of God's love is greater than the power of sin's destruction. We choose to sin. It brings destructive effects in our life. And, then, and yet the power of the love of God turns those consequences into discipline. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves and those who allow themselves to be trained by that discipline will experience a harvest of righteousness and peace. You'll become the people God has created you to be. So we sin, experience the consequences and then God in his love swoops down and scoops us up and invites us to in the midst of those consequences to turn that back on ourselves as discipline to turn our lives back to a life of loving God and loving people so that we can get back into the eternal life that he wants to give us, that Jesus came to give. That's what God's judgment does. It names the things that are out of place and then acts to restore the rightness in them. And the sad truth, I believe, is that people have the power to reject that for their whole lives. They can reject that. They can push God's love away and they cannot allow their own hearts to be affected by the love of God. They can resist having their lives turned back towards loving God and towards loving people. And I believe that the Bible teaches that if you resist God through your whole life, that at the end of your life, God will eventually let you have your way. And he will allow you to choose to spend eternity apart from him, just like a a loving parent watches a rebellion child walk away and say they're never coming back and that person will spend an eternity apart with God now I pray that I'm wrong about that I I actually pray that the universalists are right I hope God saves everybody and if you don't hope that God saves everybody maybe there's something broken with the love gear in your soul 
But what, what when Jesus returns, this is what he's going to do. He's going to do for all of creation what he's doing for us throughout our entire lives. He is going to root out of creation all the sin and destruction that distorts the life of love that the world was created to be. And we will spend an eternity, those of us who have chosen to receive the love of God in faith, we will spend an eternity loving God with everything we are and being basking in God's love for us. Loving ourselves and loving each other and loving the entire world and the planet itself and all of it will experience the flourishing of what it means to experience eternal life. Life until it overflows for all of eternity made possible because of the loving judgment of God of which we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to sin and it's hard to receive your discipline. It's easy to reject, to choose not to love and it's hard to open ourselves up to encounter your love in the midst of the consequences that sin has brought into our lives. Would you Uh, make us aware of your relentless love for us. Your relentless desire to root out of our lives the things that are distorting us from being the people you want us to be. Would you allow us to participate with you in rooting sin out of the world so that the world could become increasingly the place that you created it to be? Only you can do this through Jesus by the power of your spirit in us. And so we give ourselves to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.